Hi, I'm Zoe Panina Baker, and this is Miss Mitzvah. I danced with a boy for the first time, and it was super awkward, and I just waited for it to end. He called me a butterface during Tefillah. Well, these kids are dead sober, tons of metal in their mouth, and they're grinding in front of their parents. And it's like, you're a woman, now you gotta think about being fat every day. Growing up, I went to day school, but I never attended Jewish camp. Instead, I attended a slew of artsy camps where I spent my days tap dancing and oil painting sternly in the woods. I was a serious kid, and even back then, two months of sleepaway camp with many of the same kids I was already attending school with every day seemed just a bit excessive. Working and playing now in spaces full of Jews in their 20s and 30s, I attend retreats on summer campgrounds, facilitate countless icebreakers, and eagerly don a matching t-shirt for Collar War. I feel like in adulthood, I'm finally getting my fill of the Jewish camp experience. But growing up, though I never attended, I heard about Jewish camp non-stop. The songs and chants and special tunes and dances for prayers, the inside jokes and informal uniform of layered tank tops, Sophie shorts, and sugar shoes. Anyone else remember those puffy Tempur-Pedic-like flip-flops that look like pool floats on our tiny tween feet? Regardless, reflecting on that space now, as many of us know, uh, Jewish camp serves many purposes. These spaces provide a temporary immersive educational experience for kids that spend most of the year in secular spaces. They teach them how to pray and appreciate Jewish culture. And on the low, but not that low, Jewish sleepaway camps create spaces for young people to meet, date, and cultivate relationships with other Jews. There are many different kinds of sleepaway camps, But one thing that they all have in common is providing a space away from the prying eyes of parents for kids to experiment, get weird, and try really, really hard to find themselves. Sometimes they succeed. Other times, these spaces and the memories that now budding adults hold on to give us fodder for countless awkward, uncomfortable, kooky, and sometimes heartfelt stories to tell into adulthood. Today on Miss Mitzvah, we're going to be sharing three very different stories from young people on their camp experiences. Stories of bat mitzvahs and mean girls, hookups in Torah rooms, and maybe just a little true love. First up, we have Alex. Alex is a friend of mine from college, a talented musician, and a quintessentially nice Jewish boy from Long Island. I actually interviewed Alex a few weeks ago for episode two, Boys Behaving Badly, and our conversation quickly turned to his time at camp, where he had some unique encounters and a lot to say about exploring your sexuality in institutional Jewish spaces. Just so you know, before listening on, we have some unbleeped words in this story, including a homophobic slur that 
was pretty uncomfortable for us to reference. We think it'll make you uncomfortable too. We've kept these words in there because we think that they're important to the narrative. But you should know that neither Alex nor anyone on our team condones use of this kind of language ever. If you feel uncomfortable, feel free to skip ahead to the next story. As always, timestamps are in the description. Okay, here's Alex. Well, I'm Alex. I'm from Long Island. Uh, my bar mitzvah was in 2006, 2007. Let's go with 2007. That sounds right. Basically, by the time it got to like camp, like in the summer, we would spend camp uh, for a couple weeks at a sleepaway camp. And the I do remember someone that I was like... Uh, romantically, uh, you know, someone that I knew in the biblical sense at the time. Um, and we were, and we were pretty young and it was, it was me and she was like an amazing person. And we thought we really liked each other. It was really cool. But the counselors would be like, Hey man, we know what's going on. We, we like, and almost like egging me on to like, tell them like, yeah, it's true. But like, we actually really got along. And I remember finding it really uncomfortable to have to be like, Oh yeah, I did it. I totally hooked up with her. But I remember like counselors being like, come on, man, what's, what's the scoop? Which is like playful, but also like, I don't know. It's hard to imagine being in that position and wanting to talk to someone like 16 years old about who they're making out with. Me and her had snuck out during services and went to a room. They had this place in this synagogue that was like an extra Torah room, like a really, honestly, probably a holy space, like a space that I should not have been messing around in. But um, we snuck out and we went there and we were intimate, I guess, in ways that I had not been used to, even though it wasn't, um, wasn't anything like completely, totally inappropriate. But it was like, for me, I was like, this is the craziest moment of my life. And I happened to be in a synagogue having to be in a Torah room. So I went out at later on and I told my friends and they told their friends and they told the counselors and the people in charge, like, Oh, did you hear about Alex in the freaking Torah room in the, in the synagogue? And, um, so this one counselor who thought he was really funny came up to me and he's like, Hey man, do, uh, do you know where you were during services? And, and I was like, no, I, I was there. And he's like, huh, uh, it's just because we checked his security footage and um, it seems like someone was like messing around in the Torah room in the back of the temple. And I remember being so freaked out and I was like, oh my God. And then he's like, yeah, man, you got to make sure there's no cameras around. Uh, a lot of us have been watching that footage. And it was like a joke. It became a huge inside joke. So everyone would be like, Alex, watch out for the cameras. There were no cameras. It's not a real thing that happened. But it was just, I always felt that it was so weird because he was just referencing that he had let that event go on and there was no scolding or anything. He was just referencing the fact that it was cool that it happened, but like almost joking that they would be in charge and stopping it. Like putting aside all political views on it, it's a kind of a similar thing to what people say about birthright, which is um, that it's kind of brought 
it's kind of exists to bring Jews together. And I know my sister met her husband on birthright. I definitely met my best friend and actually all my best friends, um, that I didn't go to, um, that I didn't go to school with are from this Jewish youth group who then all ended up going to SUNY schools and all ended up staying pretty close. And now we're all in the city together. And I think it's helped me build a huge, it's the only way that I have Jewish friends is through this youth group. And I do think it's a really important and special thing to have Jewish friends. Relationships are weird in the first place. Uh, I can't claim that I have that whole part of everything figured out, but I know that I can be close with Jewish people that I meet right off the bat. And then sometimes it'll be like, after a few times of hanging out, I'll be like, oh, this guy's a Jew. And then all of a sudden we'll be like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I realize it and I'm like, that's why, that's, that's why this friendship made sense from like day one. It does happen. Um, but yeah, I think that it's, it's, I feel guilt mostly when I don't have any Jewish friends. I think dating is too complicated to add that layer to it. Although I do, like I was, I was telling you yesterday, like when I have to explain to my grandparents that I'm dating someone, I have to be, I have to say, this is my good friend because none of them, none of my girlfriends so far have been Jewish. Um, which my parents aren't like that happy about, but they've also seen a lot of relationships with Jewish people that haven't gone that well. Um, my brother's dating someone from South Korea. Like my whole family is kind of like different paths. And my parents are like, just find someone you trust and someone that you like, because, uh, you know, as long as you keep Jewish stuff happening, cause me, we're going to have to like, I might, my house might not be kosher when I grow up, but I'm still going to be Jewish. And as long as that's possible, I think that I'm fine. I think I'm in the clear. <laughs> that's like, you I... know what I just remembered? What? Well, this is a totally separate story, but I'm just remembering something that might uh, play into this too. Okay. Cause remember I was talking, so I was talking about how at camp um, and at Jewish youth group and stuff, it was pretty, it was pretty like, guys should like girls and that kind of thing was pushed on us. It got to the point where me and my friend were hanging out so much. Um, and at the time it was me, my friend, my friend who shall remain anonymous, even though I just named them. Um, it turns out at this point in life, both of them are not straight. Um, but at the time, you know, like I said, like everyone was supposed to be straight, I guess. It was just not really even talked about. Because there was like also this thing going on where it was funny to be gay. Like you would make like a joke like about like how your friends were so close that like guys would like make jokes about like being gay. And it'd be like, ha ha, no, but imagine like no homo, like not really. And then it got to the point where, so this is the story is that our, me and we were hanging out so much that our counselors started calling us the two fags. And he was like pretty much older than the rest of the counselors. Like he was like a weird bodybuilding dude that we were like scared of in the first place. But it was just like, I remember like talking, I remember talking about it and he's like, what if we were gay? I'm like, yeah, that'd be so fucked up. And of course at the time I was like, luckily we're not, but he definitely was. He just like, like it was like everything was working against him to tell me that. And even at the time, I think he wasn't totally sure, but like, it definitely would have been helpful to have a space that was less, um, you know, 
heteronormative. Heteronormative, that's the word. Or like ultra hyper heteronormative. It's worse than heteronormative. Hmm. Oh, and also there was something, one other thing that's a good example of how close the guys were there that it was almost gay is that there was something called the penis Olympics. And that was what it sounds like, which is guys, the coolest bunk would have a competition to see who could do stuff with their penis better than everyone else. And it was a legend throughout all of history that every year the penis Olympics had happened. And the person who wins the penis Olympics, I guess, wins like the coolest person of the year. Can you explain this? Because I feel like it's something that's like hidden somewhere in the back of my memory. I don't think I don't think I'm at liberty to say that much for it. I don't know because the truth is I don't want to start a big lie about it, and I don't want this to be some sort of expose based on an urban legend because we don't really know what happened. I was definitely not in the cool bunk. I'll tell you that. But the rumor is that in the cool bunk. Everyone, it would be like one night, everyone would have to, there's like one person's a referee, then everyone else does competitions like, I can't even imagine it now what competitions people were doing, I guess, like, I don't know, because no one was allowed to talk about it, we would just, it, and, and there is a possibility that the whole thing is made up, and that they tell everyone this every year to seem like, it's like a big inside joke, like, this is, like, how cool we are is that, everyone thinks that we're just showing each other our penises and we're still the cool people. So no one really knows what happened, but I'm just saying that if, if it doesn't sound hyper heteronormative, remember that the, the coolest kid in camp was the winner of something called the penis Olympics. <laughs> okay. So where to even start? Alex's interview was crazy for us on so many levels and he touches on a lot of different issues that we really want to dive into. To me, hearing him discuss things like homophobia at camp and his family's response to interfaith relationships wasn't surprising at all. But when we were discussing this in the studio, Sophia specifically called me out on the fact that I shouldn't think these kinds of things are normal. I also grew up in spaces that pushed young people into heteronormative relationships with other Jews and didn't think much of it. It was just kind of the way things were. To be perfectly honest, this topic is a lot bigger than we're equipped to tackle on this episode. So instead of diving deeper, we're going to table it and you'll just have to stay tuned and we'll be giving it its own episode later on in the season. On another note, have any of our listeners ever participated in their own iteration of the Penis Olympics? We don't really want to know, but we also kind of do. So message us privately if you've got any anecdotes. During the summer, emotions run high, temperatures run higher, and at camp, kids really push their limits. Our next story comes from Yakira. Yakira is an Upper West Sider who spent the summer of her bar mitzvah at sleepaway camp. We spoke during one of the last weeks of her summer vacation on break from the University of Edinburgh, where she's a student and super involved in Jewish life on campus. I met Yakira at B&H Dairy, 
a hole-in-the-wall Jewish diner off St. Mark's Place in downtown Manhattan. So imagine any of those clink-clanking sounds you might hear in the background as spoons dipping into big bowls of borscht and knives scraping against oversized slices of challah. We spoke about getting bat mitzvahed among mostly strangers, mean girls, materialism, and experiences with prayer that set the stage for much of her adult life. So my name is Yakira. Um, my bat mitzvah was in 2010. Uh, it was at Surprise Lake Camp in Cold Spring, New York, and I'm from New York City. And what, what was your vomit experience like? It was really tiny. It was, I mean, technically I had a really big audience. I had like everyone at camp was there because it was Saturday morning. Um, but it was supposed to be this whole thing where I got to make my own talus and learn stuff. And what ended up happening was people handed me a talus. I read two lines of transliterated Torah that I had never seen before in my life. And then I sat down again. It felt, I don't know, it felt like not enough in a lot of ways. It was, I think if I just had the time even to do what I was told I could do, to make my own talus, to learn a little bit about what I was saying, to know what the words I said actually meant, like even a couple of them, that would have been better. Um, but it ended up being very rushed and it, it didn't feel like a button that with the exception of, you know, a couple family friends. I was just standing in front of a group of strangers saying words I'd never seen before. Hmm. It was a world I'd never experienced before. Like I'd always gone to public schools and they were fairly affluent public schools. But um, on visiting day, I remember one girl's parents brought her 10 bags of clothing and she just looked at them and said, mom, I wanted juicy. And I had never seen anything like that before. It was a completely different world. and. People were just, it felt almost like I was in a movie with a bunch of mean girls. I had no idea what to expect there. It wasn't the sort of traditional Jewish camp experience where everyone comes home and has a million friends. It was pretty nasty, nasty summer. I don't know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm stereotyping them because a lot of them were really absolutely wonderful people um, and really welcoming, but I just, I have always been opposed to wearing makeup, and I never really liked skirts or anything. And I just, I never really had that much in common with people, especially at 12 when everyone's experimenting with that stuff and having fun with it. I was just on the outside. I've seen bullying, but I don't think ever quite to that unrelenting extent. And I think it's fostered by being in such close quarters for an extended period of time. But I. I don't know. I'd never seen anyone do it anonymously before. Um, so I'm not sure exactly why I ended up at camp that year. Um, I think my parents have been talking about it for a while because they wanted me to have some sort of Jewish immersion since I didn't have Hebrew school or Jewish day school or anything. Um, so I honestly felt like camp was a less Jewish place than school was. Um, when I was in elementary school, my friends and I, in the middle of soccer games, would practice the Manashana because we were all the youngest ones in our family and had to have it down. <laughs> um, 
And then I went to camp and people didn't know who Woody Allen was. Like even the counselors didn't know who Woody Allen was and I was blown away by that. Um, it was, I mean, in terms of Jewish immersion, it was just going to a place where, you know, people said mochi and there were services every week. I don't think I'd ever been to services more than one week in a row before that. There is something special about being in a huge group of people all singing these songs together and, you know, special tunes that were, that felt like camp tunes instead of the tunes that we would sing on like a stuffy day in the synagogue. I don't think there was actually a denomination at camp and I never even thought that there, I didn't really think about it, which was nice. It was just, you go and you're all Jewish and you focus on what unites you and that's something that I want everyone to be able to feel pluralistic space. Yeah, I, I think it taught me a lot about um, about how sort of friends can daven together. Um, it had always just been me with my family before. I'd never, if I saw my friends at shul, it would be more of me running away from services to find them. Um, and it showed me just how how powerful it can be to stand next to people that you've chosen to stand next to and join them in that. Um, and I also, I didn't really believe in God before I went to camp. And it wasn't, there is, there is this one moment and it sounds so cheesy, um, but the teens were putting on a production of the Prince of Egypt and as Moses said, let my people go, I kid you not, a shooting star went over. And like, it has everything to do with the fact that it was August and there, you know, there's a meteor shower at that time of year, every year. But exactly as Moses said, let my people go, a shooting star went over the lake. Um, and I'd gone through some stuff that year and I just remember lying in, lying in bed in my painted blue bunk, just going, huh, I believe in God now. That's interesting. So that's probably the biggest thing that happened there in terms of how it it shaped my my observance later on. Even though it wasn't a pleasant experience for me, I, I saw the things that made it special for everyone else. Um, and I think it's definitely something that I want to pass on, whether to my kids eventually or just to the people around me. Like it's part of why uh, why I'm involved in the Jewish community now. I want to make sure that everyone can sort of feel at home in it. Uh, and just, I don't know. I, I want people to be able to enter the Jewish community and feel like it's religious, if that's what they want, but not only religious, and that it's really just a community of people that they can spend time with and enjoy spending time with. And, One thing that struck me, but wasn't really surprising, to be honest, with Yakira's story, was the fact that so much pettiness and bullying could happen in a space where all this really meaningful prayer and Jewish learning were also taking place. Y'all know I love talking about juicy tracksuits. But even for me, this moment in her story was pretty gross. While spaces like camp are incubators for learning and cultivating community and lasting friendships, unfortunately, they're also breeding grounds for the kind of insecurity and materialism that we heard spoken about here.
So, as we segue from bat mitzvahs and adolescence into those awkward moments only high school hormones can perpetuate, I'm so excited to introduce all of you to Emily Goldberg. Emily is an emerging Jewish educator currently based in Montreal who will be joining us throughout the rest of the season as our resident advisor on all things Torah and Halacha. That means Jewish law. Emily is part of the Oral History Fellowship at the Museum of Jewish Montreal and wrote this story as part of The Talk, a storytelling event we featured on a mini-sode a while back. I loved it so much that I invited her into the studio to record it for us for posterity. The month was June, summer of 2011. The mountains of Clayton, Georgia, in the United States were covered with an orange clay that left stains on my sandals and toes. The heat rose to temperatures way past the thermometer's comfort, and my world then smelled of algae from the giant lake in the middle of the campgrounds. Wild geese permeated the front lawns of that summer camp home, squawking and honking like New York City traffic. Garden snakes more than four feet long, armadillos, goats, and field mice encircled the bunks and campgrounds, leaving familiar and unwanted footprints behind the the garbage cans, overflowing with candy wrappers. My meals consisted of stacks of grilled cheese, watery tomato soup, greasy chicken and rice, lukewarm pasta that was both over and undercooked. This is at least what the pictures reminded me of anyway, as I look back at them years later. I hardly remembered those kinds of details when I was spending my eight weeks at Camp Ramah, a conservative Jewish camp in the southeast. My mind did not capture my surroundings during the moment, and the critters and clay stains hardly bothered me. I was too distracted by something, or shall I say someone, to notice that I was running solely on sodium and adrenaline all summer. His name was Yoni. Yoni was the 5'6 to my 5'2. I had told people I was an inch smaller and 10 pounds thinner whenever he was nearby and had an even worse eye prescription than I did. He had a thick southern accent, hailing all the way from, wait for it, Birmingham, Alabama. He compiled biscuit sandwiches with more poise than any other Jewish boy from the South, and led Adon Olam to this tune of Sweet Home, Alabama. I was smitten. On paper, this guy was the real deal for me, a lanky, blonde-haired 16-year-old nerd who read memoirs for fun and spent more time inside worship centers than at malls. Yoni was a tall brunette who read science and math textbooks, could tell you about each star in its constellation, and was the first Jewish boy I met who could throw a football. He's also since been the last Jewish boy I saw do this marvelous feat. People all around us told us how great we looked together, you know, since we were two nerds who genuinely enjoyed intellectual conversations and didn't mind attending services three times a day. What was hazy to me was the actual subject of our conversations. I couldn't tell you one thing we actually talked about, but he added y'all with his Birmingham twang and casual banter, and that was all I needed. I was hooked to his obsession of aerospace engineering, physics, and geology. Our our hyper-sexualized Jewish camp seemed to take no issue with our elbows brushing against each other in the dining hall, and in fact embraced the sexual tension by instituting a phenomenon called hill time. During this 20-minute period after all evening programming ended, The counselors and directors of the camp magically disappeared and allowed 70 hormonal 16-year-olds to do anything they wanted atop of our secluded hill that housed our bunks. The pressures to explore the limits and boundaries of sexuality were endless, 
and our entire age group would couple off into the dark abyss of the trees and woods and make out behind the rusty wood bunks. On a Friday night, after Shabbat services, Yoni and I strolled through the woods. He stopped me in midst of the trees and pieces of wood piercing through the clay grounds. He looked up and pointed to the sky and whispered into my ear, You see that? I think that's a Scorpius. I laughed and shifted my weight on my other leg, which I would later learn was being eaten away by a confederate of southern mosquitoes who had flown in from their homes in nearby areas of rural Georgia. Yep, he said assertively, definitely a Scorpius. We looked at each other and smiled. You know, I started, this reminds me a lot of a passage of Mishnah I had learned. Before I could finish my thoughts, the counselors reemerged from their hiding and screamed for everyone to return to our bunks. We began walking to the bunks, and Yoni kissed my ear. Well, he meant to go for the cheek, but I looked down to examine my left leg, and he got the ear. But it counted. I squealed like the wild geese on the front entrance of our camp, and sprinted back to the bunk where my friends and I jumped up and down in the air for what felt like hours. I did it. I did hill time. This has to be what love is like. I never got to share that teaching I had learned from rabbinic literature with Yoni. But everyone knew how much I loved learning Jewish texts and traditions, so someone told my southern crush how to win my acceptance to the summer dance. This camp was really insistent that they could win the battle of intermarriage through horny 16-year-olds, so these dances were actually quite common. One day in the middle of July, Yoni brought a tractate of Talmud, Masechet Brachot, the Book of Blessings, up the steep hill where I was reading a book on Tibetan healing practices performed on the dead. My eyes widened. My first time seeing a real-life tractate of Talmud, the one I was so interested in reading and learning for the rest of my life. He opened the tractate to folio 6a, and we gazed at the most romantic passage of literature. It was a debate as to where one finds and abolishes demons. Rav Huna suggests that we have thousands of demons in each of our eyes. Rabbi Baivai Baria Abaye suggests that demons can be traced through the burned ashes of the placenta of a firstborn female black cat. The sages confirm that this process can actually heal someone. I read each line with growing fascination, but Yoni seemed eager to move to the next page. He quickly turned to the page, and before me was a note taped to the top with a phrase, Will you go to the dance with me? Scribbled in pencil. I blushed and nodded ecstatically. Getting asked to the dance via rabbinic literature was definitely the way to my heart. Great, he answered, and squeezed my palm with his sweaty hand, leaving my fingers orange from the clay on which we were leaning. He skipped down the hill to his friends, his knit kippah with shalom needle pointed into it, bouncing up and down atop his head. I beamed at the summer sun. See, we just beat intermarriage. He asked me out through the Talmud. I placed my hands on the ground, and my hand brushed against the Talmud he had brought up the hill. He had left it there mistakenly, and I picked it up. I opened the book back to the page we were reading before. I needed to know what the rabbis decided to do about that black cat's placenta ashes before deciding what to wear to this dance. I read that tractate of Talmud for two hours, my neck getting sunburned by the blazing Georgia sunlight. It was challenging and interesting, confusing, and filled with suspense. I kept that tractate of Talmud in my bunk for the rest of the summer and began to fall in a different kind of love, one that challenged me and intellectually stimulated me. I thought more critically from that kind of reading than I did smiling at Yoni quote physics equations and constellations. I read conversations by rabbis that rocked my Judaism, and I spent a lot more free time with the rabbis of the camp, 
debating large theological issues and practical dilemmas of Jewish law. My nose was buried in books while my heart flopped around the idea of a nice southern Jewish boyfriend. Needless to say, I was crushed when the distance between Alabama and New York City did not allow us 16-year-olds to visit each other and find other constellations in the sky. I left that summer camp with countless pictures of the two of us, notes he had written me, and the replayed memory of my first summer love. But what actually weighed down my backpack was the thick tractate of Talmud I managed to sneak home with me. Love of Jewish text, rabbinic literature, and Jewish debate were the new loves I gained alongside the kiss on the ear from a nerdy cute boy from Alabama. I dramatically ripped his note that asked me to the dance into hundreds of pieces when he broke up with me in the fall of my junior year of high school. But not too long after that did I consider the follow-up question. If I burned this paper into ashes, could I also find demons inside of it? My coming of age was the discovery that learning and reading was a love more loyal than summer romance. It brought me more intellectual heat than those Clayton, Georgia temperatures. Immersing myself in Talmud was more energizing than the sodium from six grilled cheese sandwiches. Debating with the rabbis of Babylon and Jerusalem and the pages of Aramaic texts before me was even more fulfilling than getting asked to a million camp dances. But that summer showed me how deep my heart can fall for a cute and nerdy intellectual brunette with a glasses prescription far poorer than mine. So perhaps it was bound to happen that just four summers later, a tractate of Talmud would introduce me to a new summer love, one who would let me finish my thought about Mishnah, debate the existence of God with me, and leave both my heart and mind beating with a little more adrenaline than summers of little sleep and dances. This guy replaced the southern yalls with true north, sorries, and challenges me each day while we discuss the same orbit of subjects. I'm grateful for the awkward sexual tensions of Jewish summer camp that helped me grow. Those sweaty palms, Georgia humidity, and hill time allotments helped me find my passions and my voice. And in return, those books that I would love and would grow to love more, years later, point me to the person I'm now going to marry. I touched base with Emily a few weeks ago over some lace cookies from Cheskis at my apartment in the Mile End to talk a little bit about her story and what she'll be bringing to the table over the rest of the season. My name is Emily Goldberg. I, I am South Florida born and New York raised. And I grew up in a community that was left intentionally liberal. It was left of orthodoxy. Everything from Reconstructionist to Reform to post-denominational to conservative, I've seen most of it through memberships at different synagogues, through Jewish day school, and my summer spent at Camp Ramah. I would say now, because of my the love of Jewish text that I've developed over the years, one that I really picked up on from my, my summers at camp, um, I really fell in love with learning and I fell in love with communities that take learning very seriously. I began to align myself with communities that take Jewish law as seriously as the way they read it. And I'd find that that would be in circles where people would keep Shabbat in a more traditional way, where people keep kashrut or dietary laws, they keep that in a more strict way. 
Um, but these people are also very committed to spirituality, they're committed to feminism, they're committed to social justice and inclusion. I would say they're an inclusive kind of orthodox. Um, cause I, today I do identify as orthodox, I, my belief system puts me in the community of orthodox Jews. Um, cause I have, I believe that my, my life here is no accident. Um, I think God has a direct hand in everything that I'm doing. But I'm also growing and I'm experimenting and I'm finding myself a little bit each day. A few people help me along the way do that. And one of the most important people I could think of is my best friend, Jonah. I met Jonah in the summer of 2015 and I decided to commit myself to a summer of learning Talmud in a very serious environment. And he was one of the first people I met I had introduced myself to the group of college students who were there by saying, I'm Emily, I'm from New York, I study in Pennsylvania because I was in college at the time, and in my free time I lead tech studies in prisons. And that was my that was my my ringer. That was supposed to get people to be interested in me, to it was a good conversation topic. And I figured no one else would have anything like that to say. And then we went around the circle and then Jonah sat up. And I remember he adjusted his blue polo collar and he said, I'm Jonah, I'm from Canada. And that already was interesting. I'd never met a Canadian. And I go to McGill and I study religion. That was also interesting to me because I also studied religion. And in my free time, I lead dialogue for Israelis and Palestinians. And I was sold from there. It turns out we have a lot in common. And since he has another year left of school, I followed him to Montreal where I now work in the Jewish community. I work at a reconstructionist synagogue. I work at a Jewish day school with a girls' bat mitzvah program. Um, I spend a lot of time at the Museum of Jewish Montreal and their oral history fellowship. And I have a huge passion for interfaith dialogue, for working with people who feel vulnerable and marginalized. And finding those voices in similar ways that I found my own has been really powerful. So, did we learn anything new this week? Kids kiss in all sorts of spaces. Mean girls remain no matter the season. And as we itch our bug bites and scratch the wounds of awkward and often painful adolescence, sometimes we're led to life's calling. And maybe, just maybe, true love. Did we shock you? Make you laugh? cry did we forget anything as always hit us up on facebook and let us know if you've got stories to share we want to hear from you we've got seven episodes left and i'm sure we've got space for something that you want to share we tried to give you all something a little bit lighter this week but tune in next week for a deep dive into body dysmorphia disordered eating and Bat mitzvah age self-consciousness and absolute awfulness. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be cathartic. It's going to be good. couple announcements before we go. Do you have an idea for a tagline or sign-off we could use? Sophia and I have been racking our brains for months on this, and we're totally stuck. Got something punny or funny or clever or literally anything related to Miss Mitzvah and the wide array of topics we discussed that you think would make a good sign off? 
please write in and tell us and we'll try it out. Otherwise, I'll keep saying until next time and that's super boring, right? Follow this combo on our Facebook page. Come on, everyone. We can do better. Also, if you're in Montreal, this is the last week to go see Miss Mitzvah at the Museum of Jewish Montreal. The exhibition comes down on Sunday, January 21st. So if you haven't seen it yet, come through. Music and production by Sophia Landman. Creative direction by Zoe Panina Baker and Sophia Landman. Special thanks this week to Emily, Alex, and Yakira. Miss Mitzvah is on view through January 21st at the Museum of Jewish Montreal. Until next time. Yeah, I when I left I didn't look back. <laughs> <laughs>